Good evening, South Philly Fellowship. It's another Thursday night meeting uh, via video, um, which is a wonderful thing, just thinking if this uh, medium didn't exist, how difficult it'd be for us to get together, um, kind of each of us stuck in our own homes and really uh, at that point, maybe in the solidarity of our own relationship with Christ. And uh, what's interesting, especially even with tonight's study, um, we were meant for much more than that. Uh, as the body of Christ, Jesus as the head, us many members making up one body. I was driving yesterday, uh, actually two days ago, and just thinking about the direction we were going to be heading in with South Philly and the Bible study over the next few weeks, and if we're going to stop kind of doing these topical studies to kind of bridge the gap until we all get together again and build verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book and and, that, and the conversation struck out with me and another person in the car about the days that we live and the, the absolute need for unity in the body of Christ. Um, and as I just was driving for about another hour through that, started really thinking about that idea, especially because of where we're at right now and how um, this difficult season for many has, has really kind of leveled the playing field um, of, of how the church decides to distinct itself from itself and, and the different ways that we almost can isolate different members or um, flocks, as it were, of the body of Christ. And, and we haven't been called to that at all. And so uh, tonight's study, uh, we're going to jump out of John's Gospel, chapter 17, uh, if you'll join me there. Uh, and this, the, the, the study is going to be called B1. And the idea is that the necessity... Uh, for the unity of Christ and try to maybe expose some of the reasons that, that there's disjointedness in the body of Christ and, and that there's this kind of separation of believer and believer or of denomination and denomination. Uh, and while we may hold different views on what certain things look like and secondary and tertiary issues, as long as we hold fundamental beliefs in regards to the need for the forgiveness of sin and propitiation found in Christ and his virgin birth and all the, the things that are necessary uh, to be a believer, Jesus himself in John chapter 3 telling Nicodemus, he said, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of, of heaven. And, and the phrase is born from above. And even Nicodemus at that point is, is staggered by the statement because he says, Should I enter my mother? Can I enter my mother's womb a second time? And then Jesus begins to teach him the distinction between being born physically and then the need to be born spiritually. And so I think, you know, again, looking at the body of Christ, the days that we live, it's been a heavy burden on my heart from the day that I got saved because I grew up in a certain fellowship of believers and then you see other types of fellowships of believers and then you grow in relationship with individual believers and you begin to have conversations of, oh, well, they're like this and this is like that and, and almost like casting judgment and shadow and separation when God made the mystical body of Christ beautiful and diverse in its nature, because he's the head, and he's boundless, we're bounded. And so oftentimes, again, in the days that we live, the, the unity in the body of Christ, the fact that we're one with Jesus as our head, and love for one another, like we looked at in the last several weeks, those are going to be the things that tell the lost world, the unsaved world, these people are different. But if we're divided among ourselves and judging each other, what makes us different? We act even as then, the scripture would say, we behave after the manner of Gentiles do anyway. So what, so what does it look like? Why maybe is there some of these divisions and separations inside of something 
that is supposed to be one. So if you don't mind, John chapter 17, I think we'll start um, in verse 11, and we'll read through to verse, excuse me, 23. I'll pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, Lord, your You're never changing, Lord. The fact that you remain the same, Lord, as the world around us is constantly morphing and shaping and changing. Our friends, our family, their view of us, our relationships constantly changing. Our financial situations, our security in this world, Lord, constantly changing. In all of it, you remain the same, Lord. And we thank you that, Lord, with the midst of all of that, that the waves, as it were, of this life uh, constantly billowing and, and uh, rolling over us, Lord. Uh, you stand as that lifeline, that help in the midst, always there with your arm extended, always there with your love in one direction, Lord. Um, not because of us, but in spite of us, God. And how beautiful that is, Lord. We don't particularly have to measure up because we never would be able to. Um, but because of you, Lord, counted in on all the riches of heaven. And so, Father, we lift this night up to you. We pray, Lord, that you take your word, you cause it to produce fruit, Lord. You sow it into the hearts of whoever is hearing tonight, the fellowship in South Philly family, Lord, or whoever else tunes in through the video, God. Father, we, we just ask that you would speak today to us, to our hearts, to our life, to our situations, God that you would challenge us, God, if we find ourselves wanting, as it were, Lord, that you would encourage us, Lord, and embolden us if, if what we hear we can say yes and amen to, Lord, that we might further say yes and amen, that the world might see your goodness and repent and be saved. So, Lord, we lift this night up to you, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I'll read through the verses. I'm going to cite uh, a bunch of different other verses um, as we navigate, build this idea here. You don't have to turn there. You can try to. You can go back and listen uh, for the video and read for yourself. Um, but again, the idea that we're going to be taking a shot at is the, is the need to be one. So John 17, starting in verse 11, Jesus says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those who you, whom you have given me. Notice that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. 
And then Jesus continues to pray. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Notice that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you have which you gave me, I have given them. Notice again, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect again in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So Jesus here in John's gospel, he's approaching the end of his life, <clears throat> gives some of the deepest teachings as you start back in chapter 14, at this point, he's in the middle of a prayer, and he's, he's, he's saying these things out loud. He's requesting from the Father. And the first part that we read there from verse 11, and you could kind of back up there to verse 6, but from verse 11 all the way to verse 19, Jesus is praying specifically in relationship to the apostles and the disciples at that time that he was walking with, that he was teaching them as they were being equipped. They were sent out with power in groups of two in order to demonstrate the kingdom of God at hand. And, and they were preaching repentance and the kingdom and healing the sick and casting demons out and feeding people. They were doing all kinds of stuff. And so he's coming to this point at the end of his life now where he's saying, I'm not going to be in the world anymore. In fact, I'm going to be out of the world, and the ones you gave me, those are the ones being sent into the world. And he's saying that the world hated him. They're going to hate them too because, again, they're not of the world. And Jesus' specific request for them is that they would be one, this group of apostles, the greater group of disciples at that point, that there would be a oneness. As you go through all of John 17, that one there, you know, and again, you could study the word, the etymology of, of the, the, the idea of one there. It means like, a, like a, a, a complete ability to sink in spirit and in will. So that they were literally, even though there was, uh, you know, at this point, 11 of them since Judas had already gone out, that they would be behaving as one will and one spirit, even though there was 11 of them at this point and eventually would be a 12th one. And so that was Jesus' main request as you go through here is the fact that they needed to be one. And that in their being one, that the world they were being sent to, even though it was hostile toward them because they weren't of the world anymore. They had long passed through the cares and concerns and the trappings of this life and had their eyes fixed on eternity, as it were, because he was with them. He had revealed an entire different existence to them as he was walking with them. And so first, his request for them specifically is that they would be one. Next, it was that they would be kept from the evil one. And then finally, again, it would be that they would be sanctified. The phrase means to be set apart. And so you're saved in this world regardless of where you were, what you were doing, who you were. As God then touches your life, his, his main objective in this life is to set you apart. No use still being who you were trying to tell people about the love and the forgiveness and the new life found in Christ if you still behave like the old life. And he was saying, no, Father, sanctify them with thy truth. And he says, your word is truth. And so he gives us a picture on then how we should, as believers, regardless of denomination, regardless of sect, regardless of, of what you believe about the gifts of the Spirit, regardless of everything, the basis for all truth for every believer throughout the entire church age is going to be the word of God. That is the thing that's going to set you apart. 
does what you say, does how you believe, does how you behave in relationship to the things that you say believe, does it align itself with the word of God? Sure, we have tradition. We have men, they different things, different church traditions. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with those things. But does how we believe align itself with the word of God? That's going to be the basis for our unity is God's word. If we're finding the basis of truth in something else, there's a problem of unity at that point. And it has nothing to do with what is called the body of Christ. It's something outside of the body of Christ. Then Jesus turns his attention to all those, he says, in verse 20. He says, I don't pray for those alone, but also those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I tonight. If you're a believer in Christ, you've been saved. You and I have been answered in, in relationship to Jesus' prayer, it has been answered, right? We're going to believe through these men who were originally sent out, through their word, the scripture being put to the page, you know, you having a copy of it in your hand today, and, and me both. But he's saying, he says, I don't only pray for those who are with me, but also those who aren't particularly going to see me in the flesh at this point. But we'll believe through what they hear, right? Sanctify them with thy truth. Thy word is truth. It says faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. So being set apart by the word of God, which is it trickles down from generation to generation to you and I tonight. And he says, listen, he says, for those who will believe in me through their word. Notice in verse 21, he says, the whole point is that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us. Notice the reason, that the world may believe that you sent me. That's a pretty heavy idea. Oftentimes we cast the need for unity and the fellowship of the body of Christ to the side over very simple differences. When Jesus is saying right here at this point, they need to be one. And the whole point is so that the world knows that you sent me. That the very Christ who we say we believe, the very one in whom we submit our lives to, that the fruit of that, you and I all together as one body, many members, different functions, would, would be a testimony. It would be a, a witness to the unsaved world, as it was for me before I was saved. Seeing the love of God abounding in the hearts of thousands where I get to fellowship at every Sunday and on Wednesdays. Thinking something is different here. I've never seen something like this before. Raised in the church world my whole life. Different denominations. And then finally coming to the truth with the, the spirit-filled body of Christ. And it impacted me in such a deep way. That I knew, I didn't know what was different. I knew something was different. And that's what Jesus' prayer for all those who would believe by the words in which the apostles would say. Is that, that the world sees that oneness. And that the world then would believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. And he says, And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one, again, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect. It's whole or complete. So if there's no oneness, guess what? We're not made whole or complete in Christ. There's division, there's separation, there's fractions of pieces that aren't put together, therefore it's not a whole. And that the world may know that you have sent me, Jesus says, and have loved them as you have loved me. What a heavy, heavy responsibility as the believers of Christ, the saints, the set-apart ones for his glory. 
And so that's really where I want to launch out from tonight is this prayer that Jesus makes specific requests of. And you can find it in a lot of places throughout the New Testament. The necessity of the body of Christ functioning as one. And so often, again, look, <clears throat> we're going to build a, the idea around certain kind of premises, if you would. Because if you look at the body of Christ in Western culture, we say, you know, it's almost like we, I have my fellowship, our flock, where we hang out at and where we eat our food at and whoever our under-shepherd is, and we walk with him. And then in the same regard, 10 miles down the road, there's an entirely different type of denomination or non-denomination, and we have the propensity as the body of Christ, because we're humans and still have that sinful man in us, to say, yeah, but they're a little different than us. Well, yes, they believe in that, but they also believe in they don't know if the gifts are still functioning today in the same capacity as they were in the days of the first century church. And so we start to be so we start to lay out all these different lines of separation inside of the body of Christ that aren't necessary in the scripture. In fact, the only thing that Jesus makes necessary, again, this is at the end of his life. This is one of his final requests in behalf of all those who are currently believing and all those who would believe in the future. And it was the need for oneness, for, for unity in the body of Christ. Unity. Whether Baptist or Episcopalian or Presbyterian or non-denominational or Assemblies of God, all the different variations and sects and denominations and theological positions, the need for unity in there. And the basis of unity is the sanctification and truth. And the basis of truth, Jesus says, is God's word. And that's where I wanted to kind of jump off tonight, because what's interesting is this. You look at people as they get saved, they, they come out of all sort of different types of backgrounds. Some people are proud and arrogant, wealthy, have worked hard, and they can become then, it, it, when they get saved, legalistic and looking down their nose and judging a weaker brother. Some people, they get saved out of... <clears throat> Total depravity and darkness and filthiness and sin and, and, and just washed over with all of the waste and the wickedness of this world. And so they can then tend to be very passive and ambivalent in, in, in relationship to, to the need to, to, to have to change. And they sit in what is called the grace of God and they, they make pass for sin rather than deal with it properly. And so you have like these two very huge dynamics. And I think, you know, again, my, this is my personal thought in relationship to Jesus saying that the need for unity in the body of Christ. Look, this message by and large is, is for church leaders, for pastors, for elders, for ministry leaders, for people who have been in the body of Christ for, for year after year, decade after decade, who serve in various fashions. It should be a challenge for us. It's a challenge for me. I know in my heart. When I see somebody acting different than the way that I was taught in the scripture, what do I do right away? I judge them. I challenge what they're doing. Though it's not sin. Jesus would even challenge his disciples at that point. He said, look, if they're not, if they're not against us, they're for us. Just because they're not doing it with you doesn't mean they're not doing it at all. Just because they're not part of your clique doesn't mean that they're not the right clique. The right family of believers, there's one family. There's one body. There's many members. There's fingers and toes and feet 
and hands and noses and eyes and mouths and ears. And I mean, you can just go on. There's all sorts of functions in the body of Christ and the need for it, for the church to be sustained throughout the ages until, you know, I hope he comes tonight, till he returns. But again, the message, you have the, the, the reach of the gospel. It's important for us to understand how broad and how impactful the gospel message really is. The gospel can take the single man on the island because God reserves the right to speak to any heart on the face of the earth the way he will and save him. And God can take the homeless junkie on the streets of Kensington and save him. God can take the man from Wall Street who's been who's connived and manipulated and been heavy handed his whole life and save him. God can take the, the regular blue-collar, obscure, nobody, America worker and family man and save him. And so oftentimes, again, I think that we lose perspective in the fact that the gospel can reach so far and wide. And that if you were saved on this side or you're saved on that side, that the process of sanctification and all of us getting to this final place of perfection in one, which will be on the other side, instead of us understanding that process... We tend to judge those on the other side of the spectrum, where they stand, how they believe, what they believe. Instead of if God has made you a mature brother, don't look down your nose at a weaker brother. If he has given you tremendous liberty in him, don't use it and cause somebody else to stumble who doesn't have that in him. And so those are the, the two ideas that I wanted to build tonight. But again, some are saved who were proud legalistic, arrogant, pompous, and God is oftentimes revealed to them. And again, the whole point of showing you how God decides to reveal himself is so that we can then be understanding in relationship to our brothers and sisters inside the body of Christ. Again, the weight behind what I'm trying to say is the fact that Jesus said that the basis of our unity in Christ is going to be what the lost world sees and knows, man, that Jesus got to be real because these people are dramatically different than each other and there's fellowship. There's oneness. And so oftentimes as maybe a, a proud, arrogant, legalistic person is saved, God would meet them in a way that they need to hear. And I'll use some verses for you. Job had got finished asking God a lot of questions, challenging Maybe rightfully, you know, whatever, that's personal opinion. But really asking God a lot of questions in regards to his authority and how he behaves and what he does and how he wills and what he allows. And God would then respond for several chapters to Job. But I often think sometimes for people who are boastful and proud and arrogant, God has to say to them to get them in. Where were you when I laid out the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measures? Surely you know. Or who stretched the linen upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who did that? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come, but no further. And here, your proud waves must stop. He says, have you commanded the morning star, the morning since your days began? He's asking Job, 
Did you tell the morning to wake up when you woke up and cause the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. He says, have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? And, and God says to him, tell me if you know all of this. And he'll go on. That was Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 18. But, but, but God will go on with Job through there to kind of lay out, no, let me tell you who I am first. And so oftentimes, proud people in heart, it's, it's the manner in which they save. Sometimes people are saved and then behave for the next year or five years or 10 years or 20 years as immature, legalistic, proud and boastful believers. And at some point, God then reveals himself as omnipotent and the king of the universe and all powerful and shakes them to their core. Now, that brother may look at another brother who is behaving in, in the freedom of grace and say, man, I, I don't know. Just like the blind guy. I'm not sure about all that. When he's telling the Pharisees, he says, all I know is that I was blind and now I can see. And so that guy has tremendous joy and walks by faith and not by sight. And though the, the, the brother on the other side who might be who might need a form of a very strict discipline and, and measure in his life because of how proud and arrogant and boastful he's been his whole life, may look then at his other brother who walks in liberty and freedom and joy and says, nope, the Lord told me and so I did it, and judge him. That's not unity. That's not oneness in the body of Christ. Paul would write, to Timothy, he says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep his commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ is appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed, notice, and the only pontinate or sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, or to be honor and everlast to him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So Paul there closing out his his letter to Timothy, again for that that the proud and lifted up brother, sometimes need to be reminded. No, no, you're not God. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the only sovereign. To him be all glory and power and dominion forever. And so again, that's one side of the spectrum. There's another side of the spectrum. And it's the brother who, who you know, I'll say for me, like myself, gets saved out of, of filthy drug addiction and homelessness and despair. Life itself, hopeless, nothing there. And so a totally different dynamic of life. Kind of approaching, you know, the, the legalistic, proud and arrogant person would assume that God needs their help. Right? They say, yeah, well, why wouldn't God pick me? Right? That person on the other side is so dejected and so beat down that oftentimes they say, there's no way God would pick me. There's no way. Why would he want someone like me? And so those are the two, the, the very broad spectrums in, in places where people are saved out of. And then you put that into the body of Christ. And then we'll kind of look at it as you go. 
But those are the two dynamics of, of where we're saved from. Somewhere in the middle, anywhere to those extremes. That's where God saves to the, you know, from the utmost, to the guttermost to the utmost, right? From the lowest to the highest, it doesn't matter, God saves. But the brother who gets saved out of the streets and filthiness and disgusting lifestyle, which he has guilt and, and a seared conscience that he thinks he could never do anything about, and, and in fact is, is almost... Like, well, maybe that's for everybody else, not for me. When he hears these words, but God who is rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So the brother on the other side, he hears that, and he thinks, I can't believe God would pick me. But if that's true, if, and in fact, I know it's true for me personally, that's how they think, there's nothing that I could do in order to save myself because I've tried everything and nothing works. And that's what those verses are saying. It's not, it's the free gift of God. It's not of works so that you can't boast about it. And so the brother on the other side, he hears maybe those verses and he's filled with, with hope and a, a, a glimmer of, of joy and new life. And he's transformed by that. The same brother on the other side who hears, where were you when I laid out the foundations and told the seas to stop? Oftentimes he's shaken to his core because he's faced with his mortality and then realizing how small he actually is in the grand scheme of everything. Both people transformed in their heart. Both people changed. The person who's downtrodden, beaten up, sometimes they hear something like this. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, this is Romans 8, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. I'll jump down to verse 37. He says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, because I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, notice, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so that brother hears that message, thinking, wait a minute, what other people think, what I think of myself, what I've done in my own life, that doesn't matter. It's God who justifies. If God says that the payment that I've, that I've purchased you with, my son, Jesus Christ, his life, the perfect sacrifice is sufficient to give you a brand new life and promise you a ticket into eternity with me, then I'll enter in at that door. That's enough. I can't understand it. Look, personally, me and my life, I'll never, I'll be like Paul. He says, I have not yet apprehended that which I've been apprehended for. He's saying, I haven't wrestled to the ground the reason God wrestled me to the ground. I don't understand it. All I know is my life has been changed. For all of us, if you're, the, if, you're, if you're a believer and you're so proud and legalistic, if you're a believer and you're still down and dejected, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I 
I believe it is. <coughs> Excuse me. It tells us, He made, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That levels the playing field. Doesn't matter if you've been a senior pastor for 50 years. Doesn't matter if this is your second day in the church. Doesn't matter if this is your first fellowship or listening to a Bible study tonight, right now. The promise remains true regardless of position and age and situation. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that you, myself, all of us, could become the righteousness of God in him. The promise is a blanket promise. And because it's a blanket promise, because the, the manner in which we're saved, the payment by which we all are paid for, is, is the same across the board, there needs to be unity in the body of Christ. There needs to be a oneness. In the days that we live, again, does the world just think we're a joke? Oftentimes I look around and feel like sometimes they do. We have more bickering that goes on inside the body of Christ than we see energy expended from the body of Christ into the lost world. Are you a, a Calvinist or Arminius? What are your theological positions and dispositions? And how do you study? What are your hermeneutics? All this stupid stuff. You should be a student of the word, absolutely. But in regards to how we present ourselves to the lost world, there needs to be unity in the body of Christ. Listen. If you're a pastor and you're shut in right now, you can't meet in the building you've been meeting in, and you know in your heart, the Holy Spirit, if, if you're born again, you know Christ. The way you've been operating the church has been more like a corporation rather than a living body. You're being challenged about those things. In fact, most of us, whether we've done things, smoke machines, concerts, all this stuff to try to perpetuate the body of Christ growing, but really we're just looking to fill pews? You know that right now. If you're on the other side, and you've been standing and looking at those brothers and judging them for that, you know that right now. Let that convict your heart. There needs to be unity in the days that we live. A oneness in the body of Christ. Jesus himself said when that happens, it's because the world will then know that the Father sent him. You may be judging the fact that people like to wear suits and ties and pencil skirts to church and you wear blue jeans and a t-shirt or vice versa. That's not unity. That's not brotherly love. That's not the fellowship of the saints. You may be judging the style of worship or how they worship or does somebody stand up and wave their hands or does somebody sit quietly with their hands on their lap and not do anything. He's made everybody in the body of Christ different. That's the beauty of it. Imagine if you could only reach the world with you. It wouldn't happen. But he's made us all different. The beauty is he's made us all different but under one covenant, the same covenant. The same access, the same promise. And I'll close with that. Jesus says, I'm sorry, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord Jesus. He says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering bearing with one another in love, 
Notice, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring, it's an effort. It's active. It's something that needs to be worked on every day. Stand in opposition to those things in your heart that would challenge the unity of the Spirit. He says in verse 4, There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Verse 5, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So in closing, you know if you have the Holy Spirit. If, if you've been judging brothers, looking down your nose, sisters, they may be called by a different denominational name, still saved by the same Jesus. If you're not a believer and you're looking from the outside world into the church and for some reason you sense hope but then you see maybe hypocrisy, you also need forgiveness of sin. Don't be that way also, standing in hypocrisy and opposition, causing division in the world. You can also receive forgiveness in Christ. For all of us as one body, now is the time. The world looking for answers, for hope, for strength, for courage. That's what our call is in this life. Doesn't mean they'll like us. Jesus promised that they're going to hate us because they hated him. But if they see the unity, the fellowship of the spirit, that bond of, of maturity, that love, that's going to be the thing that changes people's heart. Father, we thank you for this night, for your goodness, for your word. I thank you, Lord, that I'm just a waiter. I didn't cook any of these meals that come out of your word. I just serve them like a waiter serves the meals he receives, God. And uh, Lord, again, in the days that we live, Father, we pray that you would, Lord, I specifically ask, purify me, Lord. Purify my family. Purify our fellowship, God. Allow us to have that, that testimony of the unity of the Spirit and your presence, Lord, that would just overtake a person when they walk in, Lord, and not know what's going on or why it's going on, but just sense your eternal presence in that place, Lord Jesus. Again, Father, we thank you for keeping us to this point. But Lord, we pray for everybody who's sick right now, Lord. Um, and Father, that you would supernaturally move and touch and heal and restore and give hope, Lord. We thank you, Lord, in your name, Jesus.